Welcome to Right Thinking with Steve Copeland. I'm your host, Steve Copeland, and thank you for tuning in. Let's have a great day. Good morning. Glad to be here. Well, it's been a great week, and I've had a lot of comments about Leffert's uh, show last week that he did with me on uh, correcting corrections. And uh, it was really uh, it was really interesting because there was a national news piece about a, a high school a young man that uh, in May had been disarmed by a, uh, a coach, and it turns out the coach was a security guard also. But but he he disarmed the young man and held him and showed him so much love and compassion, and it went viral across across the whole country. and uh, And it pleases me because uh, the show that that Leffert and I did that that's really what the point was to find better ways to deescalate things and to work with people that are mentally ill so that they don't get thrown in prison where their life's going to be just completely, uh, if it wasn't bad enough already, it would get real bad. So I hope you got a chance to listen to those two shows that I did with Leopard. I think they're groundbreaking, man. Uh, thank you for your responses. Well, today's going to be a wonderful show. Uh, as we get into it, I'll, uh, I'll explain certain things, but let me just read the lead-in. Episode 141, Right Thinking with Steve Copeland, is very pleased to announce that this week's show is called Change Your Record, Change Your Life with guest Wade Skalski. Tune in and hear Steve and Wade talk about the great work that Wade is doing, helping returning citizens expunge their records to help them change their lives and not return to incarceration. Well, we've got Wade right here with us. Wade, you you in now? Uh, I'm in. Thank you for having me today, Steve. I'm very honored and uh, happy to be here. Wade, well, uh, you're quite welcome. But as I was telling you, uh, I... I am so thrilled to have met you, and I want to tell them a little bit in a while about how we got to meet. But, Wade, you're probably one of the very first people that I've met that's working so actively to try to help people not recidivate. And your story that I uh, was listening to the other day when we first met, I I felt that I was a little rude to you, but you accepted it. Uh, Everybody knows I can be rude, and I'm just joking about that. I'm never rude to anybody. I, I didn't really want to talk to you anymore because I wanted people to hear for the first time, how we get to know each other. So I've saved our really getting deeper. Uh, Wade listened to me sort of explain a little bit about my foundation and the work that Right Thinking does and the purpose of this radio show, trying to help people that are going through hardship. But Wade's story is so powerful, and it's just kind of like one of those divine provinces that I uh, that I got introduced. Todd Preddy, uh, my one of my best friends, I. Tell everybody's my best friend. You've heard me say about four or five others are my best friend, but Todd definitely, definitely is. Todd is uh, one of the very first members on my board of directors for Right Thinking Foundation. He's been with me for about 13 years, and he's just a brilliant individual and a caring person. And uh, he's got a business partner named Nate. Uh, they're lawyers, by the way. Uh, so uh, there are some really good lawyers out there, by the way. Uh, I mean, friendly, nice people. Don't tell any of those jokes. But but no, so. Um, uh, I met Nate, and um, and he called me up and said, "Hey, Steve, there's a guy I want you to meet." And uh, and he told me about Wade, and um, so Wade and I finally connected. And what's so wonderful is, Wade, I'm gonna let, let you tell a little bit about your background. But so you were you were in California for maybe the last 15, 18 years, and then you came to Norfolk, Virginia, and you're a lawyer, and you've got a, a your your private practice. Is that right? Yeah, all that's correct, except for actually I'm, I'm in Virginia Beach, but my I'm working on doing the whole Hampton Roads area. So, but yeah, but my wife and I live in Virginia Beach, correct? Your wife's from Virginia Beach. She is, yeah. She went to First Colonial High School, actually. And I established with you in our first conversation that she was a surfer, a surfer. Yeah, lifeguard, yeah, lifeguard, you know, yeah. She was, uh, while well, she was on the beach, I was in uh, North Dakota being very cold, basically. Well, uh, that's where we stopped the conversation uh, when you said you were in North Dakota. North Dakota is a very, very important state to me. I've been to, I had been to all 50 states with the one exception of North Dakota. And Leffert Fate, who did the show with me the last couple of weeks, who's been on the show 13 times, Leffert has a very, very close friend. And um, his his friend is uh, up in North Dakota and he's uh, in charge of, of prison, uh, John 
John uh, Hagen up there. And so Leffert wanted me to meet John. Well, John listened to a lot of my shows, and he coined the best phrase that I love about this. He said, Steve, I can see people binge listening to your show because it's the right message. And so uh, he listened to like 18 of them right away. And I, that, that was what a compliment. But he invited me to come to North Dakota, and I went into prisons in North Dakota. And so that was almost like saving the best to last, because from there I ended up going to the American Corrections Association, uh, 147th Congress, met a lot of people, met GPL, got my curriculum uh, license to go to national, and now I'm talking to you. And what's important about that, it's not about my story, is, is that you already are a national person in what you do. I mean, you're, what, what Wade does is he's got a heart for helping people not recidivate. So Wade, you want to take it from there? Sure. So basically how I kind of got into this area of the law is that uh, I would, you know, I've been practicing, uh, practicing attorney for 20 years and uh, I would, I would help, you know, people would come to me. They would be, obviously they'd have a, some sort of criminal charge they were dealing with. And I always would say their life was on fire at that point, because when you're arrested, uh, everything else goes on hold because people don't know how to process anything else except for that situation. And so I would help them, you know, put the fire out, kind of put their life back together. And then they would, I would kind of send them on their way. And then what started to happen as the longer I practiced is my clients would come back to me for help because they would get in trouble with the law again. And I was in this weird situation where, uh, I actually would make money when that would happen. So then I guess that would help me financially, but I was upset because I didn't, I didn't want to see my people again because I, I would always get sort of emotionally attached to my clients. And so I started to try to think of a way where I could help my clients not see me again, sort of like going to a therapist is, you know, the whole job of a therapist is to make sure that to make you better. So you don't see the therapist again. And so I wanted to put myself in that situation rather than waiting for my people to get in trouble. So that's sort of how I got into this, trying to help people not, not, uh, you know, have recidivism in their life. How did you get into criminal justice in the first place? What was your, uh, you know, why did you choose that? Well, it was really interesting when I went to law, I went to actually went to George Washington law school up in Washington, DC. And when I went to, into law school, my whole, my whole, what I wanted to do was going to corporate law. Basically, I was like, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to go to corporate law. I'm just going to make money. And then uh, I had a couple experiences that sort of got me into public service. And that was, uh, I worked for the, the D.C. Public Defender's Office in a juvenile prison. Uh, they didn't call it a, a prison, but it's a, basically that's what it is. It's a detention center and um, helping uh, juveniles with uh, defending them in administrative hearings. And I did that as a, a first year law student. And then I, I also went to the uh, work of the Department of Justice, uh, helping them in their appellate division. And then I worked for the LADA's office during a summer uh, at the prosecutor's office. So all of those three experiences sort of switched me from wanting to go into corporate law into more into uh, public service, more into, into being in the courtroom. And that sort of started the transition for me where I ended up being a criminal defense attorney. Well, it's lucky for a lot of returning citizens that, that you had that, that it had that impact on you. My, my situation was much different. I started out in a career in accounting, and, um, but, but I quickly saw the greed and the avarice in the business world and just got turned off by it. And um, I ended up going back into it as an entrepreneur, though, but so much trying to help people survive in the businesses. But, but I dropped out of college and um, went into elementary education because I just wanted to help people. But I'll say this. What you said about how you got into it and what I just said all comes to the same point. The very best way to fight recidivism that I've learned in my seven years going in and out of prisons is to get to the youth before they go in prison in the first place. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And also, too, is sometimes even on misdemeanor crime. So maybe, you know, if you can get to people when they start to have, like, say, a drug possession or a DUI or uh, some sort of some sort of um, small domestic violence case, if you can if you can help people improve their skills there, then they can sort of have an inflection point where they move away from the path they were on and you don't see them later for the more more uh, crimes that end up people going into prison for a longer period of time. So I can help people on both ends of the spectrum. But, you know, like you said, exactly. The earlier you can get to someone, the better. What is your um, what are your programs that you've done? What kind of programs have you done? So I basically have a class that I developed for uh, my expungement clients. I sort of informally have been helping my clients for 20 years because on a case by case basis, people over the last 20 years would say, hey, I have I'm looking to get a promotion at work. What can I do to sort of, you know, put this put this situation in context and create sort of a story that will help me with that. 
or people are like, hey, I, I want to get this professional license. What do I do? And so I've had individual, you know, helping individuals over the last 20 years with those situations. And then when I sort of changed into expungements, I, I created a class to where I could run people through the class itself uh, with the expungement so that not only would you get the expungement, but, you know, you would leave with some skills that would help you, uh, you know, maybe change you in a different direction. Some people listening might not really understand expungement. I find that a lot of people, we talked about it on the show on mental illness, a lot of people think they know what something means and they're kind of turned off knowing more about that. Can mm-hmm. you give a little background on the whole concept of expungement? Sure. So the general, the general understanding of expungement that most people have that our lawyers have never dealt with it is that you would get something filed and it would just dismiss it off of your, your, of a crime that has been committed. Once everything is done, it would just disappears off of your record completely. Sort of like how uh, underage juvenile records are sealed. So that's what everyone's common perception of it is. But it's, it's typically not like that. And every state is different. There's, there's a, roughly 13 states right now that have expungements uh, as part of uh, their criminal justice system. And they're all different in terms of how they handle it. So California, for example, which a large, a large portion of my clients come from, is that the, you get it uh, on your record. It shows as dismissed, but it doesn't completely leave your record. So the reason why that's important to know is that you actually have to learn how to put that experience in a story for yourself so that you can create a story to explain to other people to, to, you know, when you're talking to employers, even when you're talking to other people, to turn it into a positive rather than a negative. And there is a way to do that. And that's why I try to help teach my clients as part of my class. I like, I like what you just said. Um, a lot. And well, let me, let me take away all those mumbles that I just did and say it like this. I've met a lot of people in prison. They have a real problem with filling in the gap. And what that means is, is that they have a resume and all of a sudden there's an eight year break because they were in prison. And so one of the main things that they like to do in prison is to build a story and any certificate they can get while they're in prison of something they did that's positive. There's a way that they can show that. And when they sit down in front of an applicant um, or or an employer that they're being applied, um, I don't know why I have such a hard time. They apologize when they're sitting in front of an employer that they're applying for a job with. It's very important for them to know a couple things. If the employer doesn't know that they have a criminal record and they try to hide that, it's probably going to come out along the way anyway. And then they may they may be forced out of that job and never know why that happens sometimes. So I try to counsel people what you did. You did, you know, Tag, no touchbacks. No, you did it. It's there. So if you tell the story the way you're going to teach people to tell it, you know, it's like, hey, I did it, but I've changed. And then you show them how you change. I assume that's got to be very close to the way that you approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And and you touched on is that it always seems to come out in one way or another, even if you're able to get something hidden on the record or something that they can't search. Because as technology improves, as the searchability improves, you know, information is exploding rapidly and no one can kind of put that genie back in the bottle. And so absolutely, I always tell people is, is you can do you, are you, and I ask them, are you a different person now than you were five years ago? And invariably they say, yes. And I say, was this, some of them will say a, a large portion of them, you'd be surprised would say, this is one of the best things that ever happened to me being arrested because if I wouldn't have been arrested. If I wouldn't have gone through this process. I'd probably be dead today. And so that's a powerful story. And you know, when you ask an employer, who do you want? Do you want someone that can handle adversity and basically be able to work through problems and, and that they've had before? Or do you want someone who's everything's just gone swimmingly for and has never had an issue? And that's how I try to tell my people is like, you need to position yourself as someone who has learned from a situation, never to repeat it. You know how to handle situations now and that you can move forward because that's actually what employers want are people that, that have that sort of mental toughness and that grit. And I know the farther someone goes to me, the, the whole concept of there is no there is no Paul without Saul, which is a sort of a biblical reference. I'm an amateur at the Bible, but it means that the farther in sort of one direction you go shows you how far you can go the other direction. And I truly believe that about people. Well, that's beautiful. I actually um, I, I tell a uh, I make up a little story where I ask men and women in prison sometimes if there's two identical twins and one of them has been in prison for five years and done remarkably well from the moment he came into prison. And, and where he is today, and he's ready to get out, ready to have a new life. And he's got an identical twin. I use a, a brother, not a, you know, it could be a sister. And not even the mother could tell the difference between these two. 
They grew up together. They went through everything. Maybe a little, little difference in one of their eyes is the way the mother could tell. Which one does the employer want to hire? You know, that's how quick I get to the point. And most everybody goes, well, the one that's never been in prison. And I say, I don't think so, because the one that's never been in prison, he's out there playing in the streets. You know, he's got control of everything. He's getting ready to make a mistake because he thinks he's got the world by the tail. He's on his way in if he doesn't change his way. But the brother, he's already learned the error in his ways and he wants a new life. And so that gives them a little pause there to start to think about. And another one is, is that I tell them that when they're in a job interview, the little glow worm that kids have, you know, glow, little glow, worm, glow. That F that they all know is tattooed on their forehead. It only is there when they show that it's there, when they project it. Now, it's best for them to take control of the interview and the situation and let the the people they come in contact with know their story, but give it to them in a way where they're ready to hear it and feel compassionate toward what you've gone through and compliment you for how well you've done with, with who you are now. In other words, that F on that forehead, everybody thinks that everybody that looks at them when they're walking down the street sees, oh, there's a guy that's a felon. He just got out of prison. Nobody knows unless you project that. Yeah, I agree. And and you want to, if you're going to project it, you want to project it in situations that you have control over and that you have practice in dealing with it. If you hide from it, then, and the only times that you deal with it is when someone confronts you with it in a stressful situation, you're not going to be able to tell a good story about that. But if you, if you turn that into an asset and you practice telling that story to people, if you volunteer and you talk to, you know, to maybe the inner city kids to try to avoid the same thing that you did, or you talk about it at your church, or you talk about it, you know, in job interviews, you're going to have so much practice in that, that it's not going to have, you're not going to have the stress about it and you're not going to have the anxiety about it anymore. And it won't project the anxiety to your prospective employer or to the people that you work with. And frankly, I don't think you would want to work with an employer that doesn't give people second chances because everyone's a human being and everyone's going to make a mistake in their job. And so if you don't get a job because you, you, you know, tell the truth about your past, then you, you want to, you want to find an employer that values people who tell the truth and give second chances. That's the kind of people that you want to work. Wow. Hey, all you listeners out there, I told you that I was thrilled to meet Wade because he's telling you, exactly the same thing. He's coming from the same perspective that I come from. Some of the people that I've met in prisons, Wade, people don't get it because they haven't gone in. I mean, I've been in 475 times, give or take in seven years. And I just love being with everyone in prison that I'm in contact with because first of all, they just love me being there and I feel so loved. But secondly is I love them for who they are and whatever they've gone through doesn't matter. We're all children of God. And so I've met some of the most wonderful people I've ever met, and they don't have the same distractions that the outside world does. And a lot of them really spend a long time, years, thinking and praying on how to be the right kind of person that can do well in the world. One of the best things that I ever hear is people, a lot of them want to form their own nonprofit foundation. I've got a nonprofit foundation, and so a lot of people really want to know all about it. But what they really want to do is they just want to get out and help others not do what they've done, to learn from their own mistakes at that. Yeah, it's, it's great having you, Wade. I mean, I'm just getting excited about everything that you're saying because because your conversation, I mean, it's uh, I, give my, I give myself a compliment. Your, your conversation is pretty much the same as mine, and yours is beautiful. Well, I appreciate that, but it's not, it's not, you know, I can't take credit for it as much as it's just, it's the age-old lessons of, Character has to be developed. And if you, you know, if you're never challenged with adversity, it's really easy to have character if you're never challenged with diversity. But diversity forces people to choose. I'm either going to have to develop my character over this time or I'm going to keep doing what I was before. And if you make that choice and you know you're making that choice, it just makes you so much of a stronger person than if you're never challenged. And that that is one of the blessings you can find in these negative situations, for sure. You know, um, when you're talking about adversity like you're talking about, one of the things that people that have committed crimes made a mistake, you know, they, a guy that made a mistake when he was 18, 19 years old spends 20, 30 years in prison. And I, I know a lot of them. And I'm going to give you one right now. My 4th of July show this past year was called Never Take Your Freedom for Granted. And it was an interview with Wayne Mala. And I'm using his name because he wants me to use his name. Jim Stovall, uh, the person that uh, did the uh, the ultimate gift 
movie series, and I've done a lot of shows with Jim. He's a friend of mine. Jim Stovall introduced me to, to, to Dwayne. Dwayne was getting ready to go up for, for parole, and um, he had read one of Jim Stovall's books, The uh, Millionaire Mindset, and uh, he sent him a big package, about 80 pages of what was his parole package he was getting ready to present to the New York Parole Board. And Jim called me up and said, hey, Steve, uh, look, I don't know really much about guys that are in prison. And, you know, that's your thing. He goes, I thought about who could I call that could, could be of help here. He says, would you look at this package? You don't, you know, you don't have to do it, but would you do me a favor and take a look at it? So he sent it to me and I looked at it and I said, absolutely, thanks. So I mentored Dwayne for a year before he got out of prison. What it was, was Dwayne asked Jim Stovall to be his mentor when he got out. And he said, I'm not really qualified to be his mentor because I don't really know what I've been going through. You do. So Dwayne's been out for a year. So I've known Dwayne for two years now. You talk about a model human being. He went in at 21 for a violent crime. In fact, in his uh, parole package, in the letter he wrote me, he said, my chances of making parole. He was not eligible for parole for 27 years. And he said, my chances of making parole on the first time in New York, tough one crime state, is about as slim as a matchbox car winning the Grand Prix. So he knew what he was up against. Well, I got to tell you, he got parole the very first time. Why? Because he he had a beautiful career, a life while he was in prison for 27 years. He just did good things. And uh, so anyway, he's got a 90 year old woman that's his next door neighbor in an apartment complex. He threw her a surprise 90th birthday party. He takes her to the grocery store to get her groceries or picks them up for her. He picks up her prescriptions. He's a wonderful person. Just because a person's been incarcerated for years doesn't mean that they haven't been transformed. And so that's really something that I'm saying is that a lot of people do not believe in transformation. A lot of us do. And, and so part of my whole thing is, and the reason that I want you to be on the show is you're helping people come out and get back into society, not go back into prison and have a productive contributing life. And a lot of people on the outside, they're not letting people do that. They, they are afraid of them. It's just, it's, they think it's the pit bull syndrome where you never know when something might trigger that person. They go back to their old ways. What do you think about that kind of stuff? Well, I think, I think there's a couple, there's a lot in that, in that question to unpack, but the, the thing that hits me first is that for us, first of all, let me kind of backtrack a little bit. I've had adversity in my own life. And so I try to have compassion for other people that have had adversity in their life. And they may have had made different choices than I, I have made, but I can see those choices that they have made. And so that's what I try to do whenever I'm dealing with one with someone who's been incarcerated or someone who's got a, let's say that they have some sort of um, charge for substance abuse or something. I try to put myself in their shoes and I try to see, uh, I try to see a set of circumstances to where I can have made it to where they are. And it's actually not that hard to do, to be honest with you. I think everyone's capable of going and doing some of these things. And so if I come from that perspective, it makes it easier for me to help people. And then, and then that gives me a clue about, all right, you, if you are dealing with someone who's not willing to give you a second chance, or if you're dealing with someone who's on the fence about giving you a second chance, is that you have to try to connect with them in that way and say, you know, connect with them as a human being, not as a resident. And that's the only way that I think you can you can deal with people who aren't willing to give you second chances. But at the second, other than that, the other issue too is that there just are some people who will never give people who have been incarcerated a second chance. They just won't. And we don't want to waste our energy on those people, trying to convince those people or convert those people necessarily, because there are just some people who just won't, who won't make that road with you. But there are, I think that no, those number of people are low because I think most people understand that they haven't been perfect human beings in their life either. And if you try to connect with people on a human level, I think there are a lot of people out there who will give people second chances. You just have to not be defensive and be willing to, to connect with people on that level. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Uh, about my first year and a half into going into prisons, I was in uh, Powhatan up in Richmond, Virginia. And I had about 38 men in this class. And I, and I was talking to them about how hard it's going to be when you get out. I don't pull the punches. I let them know. You know, you're going to have people who don't want to deal with you because they're afraid of you. But what you need to do when they're when they're rude to you or like they, they, they just don't want to treat you the way you should be treated, just don't be angry. Just pray for them because they don't have a deeper level of understanding for what we're supposed to do with one another. And so I told them, 
just thank them for the opportunity. Don't get upset with them. Politely leave. And it might take 37 or 38 interviews, knocking on doors, I call it, before that 38th one says to you, you know, there's something about you that I really, really like. I never thought that I wanted to hire a felon. But there is something about you that you're touching my heart. I want to give you a chance. And I'm telling them that will happen if your own attitude is correct. And another thing that you can tell people, there's two things that you can tell people along those veins to help them is that that story that you just told is not only true for that person, but that person may open up the door for another felon to get a job at the same place that they just got a job at. So if you, if they look at it and say, look, you may have to knock on 35, 40, maybe 50 doors until someone's willing to give you a chance. But that person, once they give you a chance, if you blow the doors off the place and you do a great job, then another person that was in your shoes, you may have made it easier for them to get a job at that place. Or that, that employer tells another employer, hey, I got this guy. And so those actions that helps you by being calm and, and understanding that it's going to be a process. That's the one thing I try to teach all my people is that you must adopt process thinking instead of what I call the grand gesture thinking. I don't want to get too far in the weeds on it, but so many people in our culture have this idea that there's a home run ball that's going to fix everything for you. You're going to have a job interview. You're going to get a job and that's going to fix everything for you. And that's just not true. It, it's, it's, you have to make incremental change every single day and it never it never ends, unfortunately. As much as I would like it to end and have, all of a sudden you can just relax and everything works out for you, that's not the way that life works. And and you want if you can adopt that process thinking, then I think it makes it a lot easier to knock on those 30, 40, 50 doors. Wow. So uh, in our in our brief conversation we had before I scheduled you for the interview, you, you mentioned self-awareness. And a lot of the stuff that I do and I present on the show is all about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you like that. I'm going to turn you on to something that I'd like to hear you. I'm going to throw a question at you. But... I'd like to speak to you as the old TV show Kung Fu. Uh, you know, I'm a karate master, not a Kung Fu master, but, but a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. Yeah, so I mean, you, you, you got a lot of wonderful thinking there. So let's get right to the heart of what you're telling me. In the email you sent me, the reason the show today was titled Change Your Record, period. Change Your Life, period. You say that's two distinct sentences. Okay, so, and you're talking about your program, the importance of writing things down. So I, I'd like for you to just go a little bit into what I'm trying to say is this. What's so wonderful about you is you don't just have the right attitude. You don't just have the right heart. You are out there every day. You've dedicated your career to this. I mean, you're in criminal justice, but now you're in this this niche of really, really trying to help the people not even come back to you that could have paid you fees to support your family. You are doing something. You are taking action. And so that is so wonderful. So tell us about when you get a client that you really want to help them change their lives. What do you put them through? What do you teach them? Well, I had a client who came to me and, and he had some some challenges that we were going to fix for him, um, you know, some charges that we were going to expunge. And he wanted to really go be a bookkeeper. Okay. And so he, or he wanted to have, he, he told me he wanted to be a bookkeeper, but I always have learned that there's always about three questions deep as to why that is. Right. So I started asking him, you know, well, why, you know, you want to be a bookkeeper? Well, why is that? And finally I got down to it that he wanted to have his own business. Right. So it was really hard for him to get his mind around saying, I want to have my own business. But he said, Hey, I want to be a bookkeeper. So one day I can open up my own bookkeeping business. And so I said, okay, so, so what's your plan? And, and he didn't have one. I said, and I, one that's really interesting thing for me is that when I learn about someone else's dream and I'm trying to help them accomplish that dream, I have to actually go learn about that dream myself. So I had no idea what it took to become a bookkeeper. I had no idea what it took to open up a, a bookkeeping, um, a bookkeeping business. But there's actually about four different ways that you can do it. So I started to do some research on it and, and kind of for me, you know, I can do that pretty quickly because of my skill set. And then, so I went back to him and I said, all right, so here are the four pathways which one of these pathways do you want to go? And then from there, we start to write things down about, okay, so we have a general target. Now what I want you to do is, is you know, if I was to teach you this, for example, I would say, all right, let's take out, let's get a journal. If you don't have a journal, you know, take out your unicorn trapper keeper from fifth grade, whatever. And let's uh, start writing things down because your brain is not good at 
uh, planning. Your brain is in the future. Your, plane is, your brain is good for planning right now, right? That's all your brain really cares about is the present. And so we need to get a set of working papers to use the tool of your brain to create a plan for the future, much like I'm sure with your financial services background, um, what you would learn about helping someone plan for retirement or whatever. Like you have to do things on paper and on purpose and it's a skill. And if you don't do a little bit every day or a little bit every week, you'll never get better at it and you'll never get closer where you want to go. So that's sort of a broad generalization of what I would do with some, with some of my people. Let me jump in on that for a second. Uh, so when I knew what you're coming on after you told me about how you like to have people write things down, by the way, my financial services background for planning for retirement, um, that's just kind of recent. That's the area I'm into right now in a little bit. But I've always been into bookkeeping. Uh, you know, I've been a master bookkeeper my whole life, hands-on, and, uh, and business plans, strategic planning, but uh, business modeling, things of that nature. And my, my slogan for right thinking is don't quit, plan ahead. It will get better. I mean, so you and I, are, it's just a marriage made in heaven, so to speak. Let me just give you a quote here when I started Googling uh, scriptures about writing things down. Hey, I want everybody to know that. You know, the Internet's there. Google any phrase you want to and ask for God's point of view on it. And it's going to and somebody's going to have written something. Exodus 17, 14. Quote, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder. I love that because that's really kind of what it is. Jeremiah 30, uh, verse 2. This says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words that I have spoken to you in a book. Well, as I Google this kind of stuff, I this article that I picked up that's going to reinforce what you just said in very simple terms. It doesn't have the person who wrote it. The website is happyhealthyandprosperous.com. So I want to give full credit to that. And then this was slash importance dash writing things down. And let me just tell you the, the four headers, and there's a good article here, but writing things down helps the information sink in. Writing things down gives you something to reference. Writing things down can be a resource for others. Writing things down can show you how much you've learned, how much you've grown, and how far you've come. Then there's all sorts of other practical steps. One thing that I'm going to point out, though, is there's probably not a, a one among us who doesn't daydream and think about all the things you do. And the difference between successful people and people that never really take that first step, because that's the whole secret to it all. You got to take that first step. Take it where you're at and then modify as you move forward. That's Napoleon Hill concept. But here, here's what it is. If you're constantly thinking about something you're going to do and you don't write it down, you're repeating the process every time you think about it. But if you start taking notes, I remember when I was young, somebody taught me, Hey, in the middle of the night when you're having a dream and you wake up and it's really exciting, write things down. Take, keep a pad of paper and a pen by your bed. But all I'm trying to say is, is that nothing's impossible. We can do anything we set our minds to if we have an organized, disciplined approach. So that's part of what I want to say. Come back to people that you come in contact with that, that you know, breaks your heart, doesn't it? It breaks your heart. Some of these people are so changed. When, when they get out there and they have a success. But then the littlest thing, really not little to, to them, trips them, knocks them down, and then they sort of go off in the wrong direction, and then you see them a year later after they get, up, get out. Yeah, well, that's, and that's how process thinking, can, process thinking can, can help you because we're taught in our culture to be a win-lose culture, right? And there's this concept in martial arts that uh, I, I heard once that I really liked, and it said, you're either win you're winning or learning. And that's the, that's the, when you have when you have something that you see as negative happening, <clears throat> pardon me, that's feedback. That's not losing. And so, you know, you had this uh, earlier in our conversation, you talked about, you know, if someone feels like they have a big F that's on there, like, you know, that's like tattooed on their forehead, like the scarlet letter, basically. And if you think of it that way, then you will interpret any negative event to feed that view of yourself as I'm a convicted felon or I'm, I have a conviction on my record or I'm never going to escape this problem. And if you view that the, uh, winning and losing, every time that you quote lose something, it will feed that negative image and then you'll trip yourself back into dealing with those stressors in an old way. But if you think of process thinking of winning and feedback or winning and learning, then when something negative happens, you say, all right, I have to take responsibility for this, what's happening right now. I have to look at it 
this feedback is telling me I need to change something. What do I need to change? And maybe it's the people that you're talking to. Maybe it's maybe it's how you're talking. It doesn't. No, I I can't I can't fix anyone's problem, but I can help them learn a process where they can fix their own problem. And that's where the real power comes into taking responsibility. And the real power comes into you know learning to interpret feedback as a way to change yourself and not be afraid of that. You've said a lot of powerful things on the show so far, but I think the one thing that you just said is the most powerful. We can't change people. They have to do it themselves. They have to want to change themselves. And until they get to that point, we can, we can teach them, show them anything that we want. We can, we can do as much as possible, but they have to want to make the change. And I, I love that you said that. Let me get a quote or two that, that you wrote in your email to me. I teach people the concept of, quote, working papers. And then you use a quote that says, quote, on paper, on purpose. That's pretty much what you've been talking about. Is there anything else you want to add to that concept? Well, the only thing that I thought about is, is that, and, and I will say this for myself because maybe this only applies to me and doesn't apply to anyone else. But when I write on paper, uh, it allows me to see all my, my stupid ideas, right? Because it, like most of like 90% of what I put on paper, it's not going to work. But like you said it before, is that if you don't put it on paper, then you're just rolling these things around in your head. And these may be things that you've latched onto that aren't going to work. But you, you have to go through all of the things that aren't going to work to get something to work. And there's a quote that I always think about. Uh, Thomas Edison, is, they're famous for talking about how he had 10,000 tries to get the light bulb. And they said, well, how did you, how did you, um, how did you be able to do that? And he's like, no, I found 10,000 ways that it, it was, wouldn't work. Everyone focuses on that part of the quote, but they don't, they leave out the second part of that quote and I, or, or something else that he said related to that quote, which is, it took me 10,000 tries before nature would give up her secret, or I'm paraphrasing there. And that, beautiful. That, that quote always stuck with me because it links the failures to finding the secret. And so that every time that something negative happens or you get negative feedback, you just have to realize that you're one step closer to find, you know, to having nature reveal her secret to you or to having the universe or God or however you want to, you know, whatever you, you believe about life is that part of the journey and process. Actually, you must go through those failures to get to where you want to go. And if you were shut down by a failure, you're never going to get where you want to go. You can embrace it as feedback, embrace it as learning. You will lap people that have never had the adversity that you've had. You can, you can learn things and go places that people would never thought you could ever go by learning that process thing. And that's, that's, you know, your, your working papers help you to do that because you create sort of, um, you know, you hear the term of an avatar, right? Like you create an avatar on your paper that the paper can make the mistakes for you so that you can make a lot of those mistakes on paper and then go out and uh, you're not having to make them in the real world. And that's why paper is so powerful because you can really compress time frames for yourself. Wait, I, I got to tell you, you know, this is our first real in-depth conversation. We just had a 15-minute conversation last week one day. But um, in my in my curriculum, I, I my introduction to the module on business planning, it it it's this. Would you rather lose your Let's start off. Do you, you like to play Monopoly, you know, play a board game where, you know, it's a, it's a nice board game there. Sure, everybody knows Monopoly. But would you rather lose everything you've got, your life savings, in a board game like Monopoly than in real life where you jump into something kind of kind of too fast, unprepared, and it doesn't go the way it should have gone, and you lose everything? That's why we do things on paper in a business plan, because – you can look at all the obstacles. You can identify everything. You can take a sound approach to finding out all the right things that need to be done. I, I'm reading a book that a high school uh, classmate uh, at the reunion I went to last week, he gave me a copy of a book, and I was really honored. He said, Steve, I, I wanted you to have a copy of this book, and I haven't seen him in 20 years, but I'm not sure why he chose me to give a copy of the book other than the fact that me and Larry Harcum had a lot in common. Uh, we were both, uh, for the lack of a better word, screw-ups, delinquents, you know. On the back of his book, he, he said to me, he said, do you believe that I really wrote a book, Steve? Well, I do, because I knew that he'd become a bank president, and uh, and he, his whole life went incredible. But he did some great stuff, and it's a book where he took a uh, he took a jet ski across called the Great American Loop. He went out of Virginia Beach on the Atlantic Ocean, and he went all the way up north to the Erie Canal, came back down to the Great Lakes, came back all the way down the Mississippi River, came down around Florida and came back to Virginia. 
5,800 miles. And it's his chronicle of what he did on that. But he's given such positive steps here about how to do things like that. But it took a lot of preparation before he set out on that journey because, I mean, he could have, you know, that his wife, you know, was scared to death for him. Why am I saying all this? No matter how bad your life's been, if you take the time to surround yourself with the right kind of people, people like you, Wade, people like me, if people surround themselves with people who genuinely care about them and want to pass on some knowledge and some truths to them, then anybody can succeed. Anybody can do it. Let me read your next quote here. You talk about metric. Another concept I teach is metric because what is tracked naturally improves. I like that. Let me stop just for one second. I went off on a tangent there about Larry Harkham. Here's why I said that. He wrote down, somebody taught him, write down the 10 things that you want to accomplish in your life and put it away and pull it out in five years and look and see if those things that you wrote down are still the things you want to do. And if you haven't done them, tell yourself, I've wasted five years and hurry up and start working on them because you know if you really want to do them, then do them. But it takes a focus. It takes elimination of distraction. You're talking about tracking things with matrix, metrics. I mean, I think that's just basically evaluating yourself to see how well you're doing. Yeah. And, and I think it kind of dovetails nicely into what you said about writing down um, what you want to do and look at it five years from now. Sometimes if you track something, you start to learn what it takes to get where you want to go. And you may learn that you actually really don't want to pay the price to the place to where you want to go. It's, it's, we all have sometimes in our mind this fantasy thinking of, of uh, what we think our life, we want our life to be because we're either comparing it to other people or comparing it to some idea we have in our head. And if you have metrics that you determine, not me, not, not Steve, just the person that you're helping says, all right, this is important to me. Uh, and I, and I want to improve this. It could, doesn't have to be money. It could be, you know, how many times, how many times I see my kids, right? How many hours a week I see my kids, whatever, like that's a metric and you decide. And then as you start to learn to track those, those simple metrics, you can then say, all right, what if this is working for me? What is it? How can I course correct? But also you start to, you're forced to ask yourself, do I really want this thing? And sometimes you'll find that you don't, and that will be the path for you to find what you really want. And that's a skill too. Uh, and so, but if you live in fantasy thinking all the time, you don't write things down, you don't track your, your progress, positive or negative, your brain is very powerful and it will always rationalize a reason for where you are. It will, and it will usually rationalize too with someone else's fault or you're a victim and, and that's why you are where you are. But, but if, you, if you take 100% responsibility for where you're at and you are tracking where you're at, then you know why you are where you are and you know if you're working to improve it or not. And then that falls directly on you. And then you are making the choice, yes or no. Beautiful. So um, I won't get into this topic right now because it gets kind of lengthy. We have about 10 minutes left, give or take. I want to stay focused on the work that you do because uh, this is just our first time, but I can see, you know, I hope that you want to spend some time uh, with right thinking and us collaborating because, uh, because, what I see in you is a person that you're a professional, you're a lawyer, you're a criminal justice, you're a criminal attorney, but you have gone to a place in your life where you have so much love and compassion for other people that, that you've dedicated yourself to trying to take the people that are coming from this particular hardship population and trying to say, hey, listen, I think I can maybe help you get focused and get you in the right direction or help you continue in the right direction that you've already come to. My, my, I have a thing called pathway to success and it's daydream where you want to be in five years. And then, and, and it's a whole process. I put people through kind of meditative and then we lay out the path to get there, the training, the things you have to do, et cetera. We'll do that another time because it's real deep. Let me, let me give one more of your quotes here. You said, also, I teach people the importance of short morning routine. Would you explain that? Sure. So, so if you, your, mor- your morning, depending upon when you get up, and it seems like such a simple thing. But, so I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so if when they wake up or my wife wakes up, then my day shifts to my family. Right. But for me, in order for me to be able to put myself in the right space, I have to get up or I enjoy getting up at 5 a.m., that may be too early for some people. And I take a half an hour where I do the same thing every morning for that half an hour before I start my day. And the reason is this, is that 
uh, you need to get reps in, uh, repetitions in of things when things are normal so that when things go south, that you have sort of a touchstone to return to. And so uh, I'll give you an example. So my son, um, he's he's uh, almost a year and a half and he's had some medical challenges. Now, thankfully, they're going to turn out to be fine. But during that period of time, it was extremely stressful of going to doctors and he was sick and all that. And so I, but I always had my morning routine to return to that would center me so that I was better prepared to handle the day when things were very stressful that were coming in. And so when things are stressful, you have sort of a touchstone that kind of keeps you centered. And when they're not stressful, you just, you do it to get the reps and to, to properly uh, put you in a, a mind, a mindset for the day. And so it doesn't have to be long, just 30 minutes. Um, and you know, you get to determine what that, what that is, but you get up at the same time every day, you do the same routine. You know, some people try to do an hour. I find that's, that can be too long, especially if you have a family, but just 30 minutes that are for you and they're the same every day. And it involves some form of writing at least for five minutes. And then that, that is a touchstone for you in the good times and the bad times. That's really important, and I find it's extremely helpful. That's very good. I'll, I'll add one thing to my routine uh, that's similar to yours. I try to, before I go to bed at night, I say my prayers, sure, but no. Before I go to bed at night, I try to think of the most single important thing that has to get done tomorrow that I don't want to forget about when I wake up. Because if you wake up and don't have your priorities kind of already laid out a little bit, you're going to go off all sorts of different directions. And then you go, oh, man, I should have done that. I forgot. It's all discipline. But, you know, I've got 141 shows now. And this is my 141st show. And they're all the same thing. Know your purpose. You know, find your purpose. Live your purpose. Lay out plans to achieve your purpose. Eliminate distractions and connect yourself with the right people. And there's a lot of other things that we get involved in. Let me give you uh, the last thing that you said here. Uh, and then you said, if you put these things together, working papers, the metrics, the short morning routine, if you put these things together, you have a strong foundation for incremental change. And this is what's important. And incremental change is lasting change. True words were never spoken. Yeah. And that's not like, they're not my words. They're just, they're, they're an observation of sort of, you know, all the things that you're talking about, they, they have been true because they are laws of how things work. It's not a, something like this is not these things aren't something that you made up or I made up and they just happen to work. Like, you know, many people over many years, uh, uh, thousands of years have determined these things. And we are just sort of we learn them and then we teach them to others with a voice that they can hear. Like, that's the thing is what I you know, some people will listen to me because of my experiences. And those people, I just try to say, look, these things have worked for me because I I sort of uh, eat my own dog food, if you will, is a saying. Right. I, I practice what I preach. And so. These things have worked for me, but they, you don't have to take it from me. These are just, if you look at Napoleon Hill or you look at, there's these lessons in the Bible or you look at just over, you know, all this time, these are things that have constantly worked for people. And for whatever reason, you need to hear it from me. I don't know why that is. If you listen to me, great. If not, then I can introduce you to my friend, Steve, or I can introduce you to this book or whatever. But these things, you know, they take constant effort over time. It's, it's just, you know, the, like a farmer, a farmer has seasons and it, a farmer just doesn't get a crop that lasts in his whole life. Every year, he, the farmer has to redo his crop every year. He's never granted a crop big enough to where it's just, he's just done. He can just sit around and not do anything anymore. And that's how life is. And once people realize that, they can commit to a process and they can commit to that increment. They can start to value incremental change and then you're winning every day. And that's the, what I try to get people to see. Wow. Wow. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to repeat what I said while I was so excited when you first came on. You are a person that's got so much inner heart that you're bringing forth to live the life that you have that your heart's telling you to do. I mean, you, you're doing that. So with, with that said, I, I, I kind of just want to sum it up. I, I asked you to come on the show today so that we could start to get to know each other a little bit. Instead of telling you on a long phone call about all the stuff that right thinking does and trying to give you the philosophy that I live by, I could tell in the first few minutes with you that, you know, you're a, you're a brother out there that's just doing the same thing I'm doing. And, and again, I, 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 I'm humbled by, by you. And for me to say that I'm doing the same thing you're doing is, uh, you know, maybe I, you're, you're doing so much. It's just beautiful. I, I just love what you're doing. So everybody that's out there that's heard this show today, 
if you've got any hope whatsoever that you might you might be able to really succeed in this life and you've been having a hard time do it just remember you've met wade today you already know me you've got a lot of other people that i bring on the show and stuff but but what's most important is get to know yourself in other words you can meet a lot of wades and a lot of steves and read a lot of books but you got to believe in yourself and so wade what you're doing with expungement we didn't get too far into talking about that all the different hey that's a whole lot of information because it's not all really that easy and uh it's a lot of hard work that goes into the professional legal side of what you got to go do um i wanted to bring this up though there there's a, a book uh it's called barriers to crime and another one restrictions to employment that was put out by the virginia department of correction by gwen cunningham and Gwen, Gwen retired about three years ago when she was my mentor. She spent probably 2,000 hours with me and so forth. And what a blessing for me to be trained by Gwen. But in Virginia, I, they have these two publications. And they say, if you've been convicted of a certain type of a felony, you've got to uh, make sure that before, when you get out, if you want to go into that area of uh, professional work or licensing or whatever, that you check first if you will even be able to apply. So... When I go to Tennessee, um, that struck a chord with uh, one person that corresponded with me because um, he wants to start planning what he's going to do, but he doesn't want to waste his time because of the caution that I gave him. Well, let's do we'll get let's do another show sometime in the near future, and we'll talk about those kind of details because Tennessee and I'm with the top people in Department of Correction. Uh, I, I was talking just a week or so ago with the uh, deputy commissioner, and they don't have a publication like those two that we have in Virginia. And so I took that into Tennessee prison and, and used that to, to, to show this one inmate uh, the types of things that are probably pretty similar in Tennessee. But it's so critical to make sure that you clear your record as much as you can and go through that process. So today I just really wanted to have you on and let people get to know you as I get to know you. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? No, I just uh, I just want to thank you for the time here. And, and you know, the most important thing that that I think the lessons that I try to always remember for myself is that is everything is a process. And, uh, you know, it's there. It's you know, things are going to be up and down. But, you know, as long as you're trending 51 percent, you're always going to be, you know, a better person today than you were yesterday. And that's what I try to do myself. Well, you're setting an example for a lot of other people. And I I would I would hope that a lot of other professionals would spend a little more of their time trying to give back to some other people and and not just be so concerned about their own retirement for later. Uh, I'm not putting the head on professionals that aren't giving generously, but your time is what's most important. So let's welcome some of these people back that do have a chance to get back to their families and have a successful life that previously didn't have enough opportunities that they could get through. So Wade, God bless you for what you do. Thanks for coming on the show. And everybody have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again or being with you again next week. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to Right Thinking with Steve Copeland. I look forward to being with you again next week. And remember, don't quit. Plan ahead. It will get better. God bless you, and have a great week.